two, three, four. You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Well, good morning and welcome to the Felony Inc. Podcast, live from downtown Portland, Oregon, and brought to you by Startup Radio Network. I'm Lad Justison, and each week we interview formerly incarcerated men and women who have turned their lives around and started successful businesses, and in the case of our guest today, has risen to the top of his field. The original host of our program, Dave Dahl, is out of town today. Believe it or not, he is buying a Savannah cat in Texas. Uh, He's going to be calling in, hopefully, here in a little bit to join us. But as of right now, he's not with us. Um, So these guys, they turn their lives around. And, you know, we hope that today's um, guest will be an inspiration. But before I get to our guest, um, I'd like to tell everybody that our other co-host, Mark Gailey, is not going to be with us today because he gets a chance to see his son, which he hasn't seen in about two months. Um, But other than that, we're ready to go. And so, all on, you got anything to say today? We don't even have anybody here besides. I do have something to say. What is it? Seeing Iron Maiden tonight. Oh, oh wow. man. At the Moto, which is a small place for them, actually. Because, oh you goodness. know, they're oh still playing like 30,000 people in Europe, right? I mean, <laughs> right. Like, it's like a rock festival on its own when they play. So, wow. Yeah. I seen the Rolling Stones last year in Edinburgh. Oh, that must have been awesome. Yeah, it was really awesome. And they rock it, too. And a lot of old grandpas still doing it. Man, I'm telling you, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Those those guys, even though what Mick Jagger just had a heart surgery, but he's still prancing like a 22-year-old, eh? (laughs) He don't give up. That's right. I think he'd live if he didn't sing. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I know. I mean, it's it's an interesting case, right? Because they... They can't really be in it for the money anymore. Right, right, right? exactly. I, mean, exactly. I, I guess, I don't know. I've never yeah. been that rich, so. Now they probably get a spiritual high off of it, for sure. Oh, yeah. they run around and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Five-star hotels, they all have their own separate planes. The whole, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a real rough touring. <laughs> so, in case our listeners are wondering who that third voice is there, that is our guest today. His name is Doyle Smith, and he is the executive director of DDA and what DDA is it's dual diagnosis anonymous which means that you are not only hooked on drugs but uh, in most cases I have some type of mental disability mm-hmm. as well and or addictions in, in general not just and drugs yeah. but you know I you know I think Dave has said this before that most people who you know are doing drugs obviously more than likely have some kind of a mental mental issue going on right um at least um i did when i was younger right i uh i did drugs and you know i I had mental issues before i'm sure right and then it enhanced them when i was on drugs which i don't know if that was a good or bad thing but it did so anyway welcome to the program doyle smith thank you thank you so you know doyle we've uh We've kind of interacted with you quite a bit. You know, uh, our band, actually, the Killer Granddaddies, played at one of your functions. Two. Two of my functions. That's right. Yeah. And you know what? You know what, all on? You're not... I wish I had the video. Yeah. 
but uh, Doyle is a, he's a dancer. Oh yeah, no he drugs was, needed. Anymore. I was going to say that was going to be my next question. <laughs> he course. was out there grooving. He was trying to get all the other people mm-hmm. there, you mm-hmm, know, involved. Conga line. Um, oh my God, he was uh, swinging it, man. He's got the moves. Nice. <laughs> Have you always been a dancer? Is that a late onset? In my own thing? mind, right, but right. I, I guess what I'd like to say to that is that movie, do, uh, music does move me, and trying to get back to the little child inside that where you don't have any preconceived notions of fear or worry or judgment is what I try to display to people now being clean and sober I got over 26 years but yeah we put on events for DDA which the killer granddaddies we've been honored to have on a couple of occasions that's that was right the Clackamas County first one what we had was pretty interesting and then the second <clears throat> one was the miracles of emotions in Washington County but yeah I was dancing and I was trying to get people going and well, I don't really know. have I don't have any shame no, there was no shame that night. <laughs> it was amazing. I, I like I say, I wish I had a. I think they had some video of that. Oh didn't my they? god, I don't know. I'm sure they did. Yeah. But you know what? You you know, being the director of the facility, and you know, and uh, seeing some of these people, obviously they're, you know, they're inhibited and they're withdrawn mm-hmm. and whatever. You're trying to bring them out, right? You know, to see you get up there and and get goofy and let it hang out. You right, know, right. it's got to get them motivated, right? Right, exactly. And um, these events are to in- not only inspire people, but to build support and have a community event, which kind of helps teach people, too. And there was over 100 people that showed up, and that was a free and fun event, um, other than what we paid out for people to come. Um, right. But, yeah, it's ho- hopefully to give... Um, you know, a space where people can feel comfortable and relate without um, identifying what their mental health issues are, their addictions, it's clean and sober fun. We try to forget all that when we're doing those events. That's right. Yeah. I know the killer granddaddies are still waiting to get paid, but... <laughs> You know, we, you know, you know, we only love, one of you. We love doing that. that. That kind of stuff is what you know. Well, you guys that's can really it, why man. Dave formed a band. You know, yeah. it's it's you know for the enjoyment of music, but uh, man, it's just great fun to go out and and uh, and do those events. So you know what we usually do here, Doyle, is um, you know. We usually interview entrepreneurs, you know, guys and mm-hmm. gals that have gotten out of prison and and turned their lives around and started a successful business. But we've had other guys on, you know, uh, on the program that have risen kind of to the top of their field, but were, you know, formerly incarcerated. Right, right. So why don't why don't we go back? We usually do this with our guests. We go back to their childhood and kind of, you know, kind of see the things that that, you know, were happening back then that kind of led you into that life and then, of course, into prison. Right, right. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in North Portland. Um, and, you know, it is true. Children do live what they learn. Um, and and what I learned was um, a lot of hostility and anger and resentments and criminality based on my environment. I grew up over by uh, in St. John's area. My dad was in prison, and my mom was very young having me, and my sister was only a year older than me, about the age of 16. Um, she was manic depressed, alcoholic, um, getting beaten up all the time um, by an angry construction worker who was alcoholic. Um, and You're talking about your dad. I'm talking about my stepdad. My your real dad step-dad. was put in prison for robberies. Um, oh. And um, so my mom ended up with, with my stepdad, which... I've actually made amends to and loved very much towards the end of his life. Took a lot of repairing and recovery and counseling. But before that, it was very 
very traumatic. You know, I was hiding underneath the bed. I was running away. I was running to the neighbors. Police were being called every day. While I was in school, at the age of, uh, in first grade, I was actually being kicked out of school for my behavior. Um, I flunked the first grade. I have attention deficit disorder, and I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder based on all the violence that was done to me and my sister um, and watching what happened to my mom. I, you know, I just, I, I can go on and on in terms of all the all the stuff that created a lot of madness. Um, I ran, like I said, I ran away when I was nine, got in trouble with the police. I was putting a paddy wagon at the end of nine, being arrested um, for juvenile stuff. By the time I was in 18, of course, I was in all the jails and just, I never knew when I wasn't going to be based on my drug addiction stuff. But prior to that, I was growing up in a neighborhood where... My parents were gone all the time or selling drugs. My uncle I aspired to be like. That was my step-uncle in St. John's, who was a big-time big time heroin dealer, which I respected because of the money, the, 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 the women, all the stuff that, you know, you would get normally. And I wasn't really feeling school, right, um, to the point where when I got into high school, I was getting in fights so much, I got kicked out of my freshman year. And that put me into an alternative high school, which we called Open Meadows Learning Center. And so... The violence, the drugs, the the referencing of how people did things in my neighborhood was just waiting to create a train wreck. Um, and not only for me, but for most of the people that I grew up around and a big part of my family. And so drugs and alcohol entered my life at the age of nine. By the age of 13, I was smoking weed and drinking alcohol. By the age of 19, I was a full-blown alcoholic. By the age of 25, I was in my first treatment program, and I was in four to five of them, many detox centers, lots of jails, and, and then, of course, facing 20 years and $200,000 fine for armed robbery and carjackings for the ones that I got caught. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I didn't get a DUI, because I was always drunk and driving, and it's not, not something I'm proud of, but... I, I'm a late-stage alcoholic, and I didn't know that I was, when when I was drinking, it gave me courage, it gave me confidence, it made me not care, made me want to fight back. Um, meth and speed was what propelled the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So, And then because of the attention deficit, it just settled that down. And that side effect got into paranoia and criminality and, 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 and all that other stuff. So I never thought I'd live to be past 32. I haven't said sex, drugs, rock and roll, fuck it, you know, you know mm-hmm. and sniff it and it's just be crazy. And um, everybody around me was dying too. So I just didn't expect it. And, and uh, but there was some things inside of me that just knew that that wasn't who I was, even though I was subjected to all that stuff for many years. Um, and so there was like this humanitarian person inside of me that was trying to come up. And when my mom died when I was 25 and she was manic depressed and late stage alcoholic, and my sister actually passed away from this too, her name is Dina, they didn't get help by being arrested. Uh, they really didn't. Um, and I tell everybody I got, I got saved by being arrested. Um, if I wouldn't have been, I was in detox centers and psych boards and all that good stuff, but the, it was the jails and the prisons stuff that really helped me settle me down long enough for me to get a clue. And it wasn't until four true treatment attempts with my, um, my addiction, which had nothing to do with mental health, um, which it should have, um, I was relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. And then when I found out that I had these things that I needed to really embrace, which was the mental health piece, um, is when things started getting better. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you know, we've had a lot of guests on the program, and, and um, usually it's the theme is, you know, broken family. Right, right. It starts with that, you know, then you're really kind of looking for, you know, a 
really another family. And whatever that is you find, a drug world, uh, whatever, um, it seems to be a pattern. You know, very few guys come on here and or women come on here and say, oh, I had a perfect life. All of a sudden, one day, I just went out. And, you know, it all builds up from something. You know, so you guys have, right, right. you know, we all had a start. My, my stepfather was the same kind of guy you're oh. talking about. You know, real abusive, verbally, mentally, physically, mm-hmm. you know. And, of course, that led to a lifestyle of, you know, trying to fit in somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, you went into the Oregon prison system. What was the longest time you did? Well, I, I got the, the the picture here that shows when I was arrested in 1991 for those armed robberies. Um, I was facing 20 years. Um, my my defense lawyer says, you got your affairs in order, right? You're not going to come out and ha- without being in handcuffs and go down, right? I'd spent nine months in county jail. Got out on intensive supervision, got put in a drug treatment program for seven months, went before a judge, and it was right before Measure 11s, and I got three years suspended sentence, time served, and a $1,600 fine. That was for the things I was facing that would have been like two back-to-back Measure 11s, if it would have been Measure 11 time back then. And then about 14 months later, I got an assault, too, which put me in um, incarceration for, it was a four-year sentence, and then I did two years. Um... And that was the last time I was arrested. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, again, the, just so you know, before that happened, I was weighing 136 pounds and uh, homeless, you know, strung out, couldn't, couldn't figure out my life, was really not caring anymore. I'd just given up, was told I didn't amount to be nothing or anybody, which I really believed at that time. Couldn't say a straight sentence, couldn't really um, be present for anything. So I actually, I was I was walking the streets of Portland and I owned everything that fitted in a little duffel bag. And I was sitting at Tom McCall Waterfront Park on March 10th, 1993, and I was contemplating suicide. And that's what this tattoo is on my arm, um, on my arm right here in terms of my, my journey. Um, and I, I don't know what happened. I mean, that night, on that bench, when I was really giving up, totally giving up, um, I had this epiphany. I don't know how else to say it. It was just like this thing that settled over me that said, if you help people, things will be better. And I walked my butt down to the Justice Center, and they, they, you know, I had warrants, so they, they processed me, and then I didn't come out for a couple of years later. <laughs> you stay you were in the county jail for a couple of years? No, 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 no. I got I was I was held there and then I got convicted and then I spent time in there. Yeah, where did you go? What, what prison? Well, I I was initially in CRCI and then they put me in the restitution center because oh, they were yeah. overflown. Mm-hmm. And so I was there I was literally there for 17 months. Oh, wow. After that, after the the yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, but I don't know how many times I can count that I was in county jails from anywhere from six to nine to 10 months um, over and over again throughout from 18 to 31. Wow. Yeah. You know, with that, what we're going to do is we're going to thank some of our sponsors. Okay. CPA Dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startupradio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. 
Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. All right, we were trying to patch old Dave in, but it didn't quite work. So what we're going to do instead, I you know, let's get back to Doyle. He's a lot more interesting than Dave is. You know, what the hell? Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, well, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> he's, no, he's a interesting. pretty interesting guy. You were interesting on the dance floor. I got to give you that much, you know. So, uh, all right. So let's, um, so you had this epiphany, um, you know, we, um, the guests that we've had on the show before, it always seems to be this one particular time, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, all of a sudden they just, they're like, you know what, i got to change this. Right. You know, something's got to, something different has to happen. You know, that right. was the way it was in my life, except for I was a little bit more hard-headed. And so what happened was, you know, when I was in prison, I would, I would take all these classes, you know, drug and alcohol classes, cognitive classes, and all these other classes, and then go out in the yard in the afternoon and get high, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, there was that, just that one moment when I was finally, you know what, I've had enough. All right. And it was cool because I always call it a change of heart. And when I had that change of heart, I was able to use all those things that I had learned in those classes that I just thought was, you know, mm-hmm. I'd mm-hmm. go in there. And I did all right in the classes. I always They always wanted me to be a mentor or whatever. But... That stuff really didn't apply because I wasn't ready for it. Right, right. And so then here it is, you know. All of a sudden, I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of this. So there had to be that point for you. And so you moved on, and now, you're, you know, well, from there. Well, if I can just um, just kind of connect to that moment there when I weighed 136 pounds, everything on was in a bag, wanted by the police, and I was, like, ready to commit suicide. That epiphany, actually, if you had to think about it, was a broken spirit so far down that he just, gave up in a sense there was a lot of things that was probably referencing it in terms of it being confused about how I couldn't stop because I had been in previous treatment programs and cognitive stuff dialectical behavioral therapy classes psych you know the whole nine yards so that that was part of the deal but there was so much damage I mean there was really so much damage I had no clue about in terms of what needed to be repaired in the mental health piece on top of being just saturated with drugs and alcohol and it was just this broken spirit. So when I, when, I, when I got better and I came out, I was actually going to school, Clark College, to, to do computer science. And um, I wasn't planning on doing any counseling, which I ended up getting certified in a degree for. But what I had planned on doing was making money. Yeah. And, um, and I wanted to get the house and the car and the wife and all that stuff within my first year of recovery. And what I really got was a license and a bus pass and some 20-long cowboy boots in my first year. (laughs) And I couldn't even talk straight for a minute, man. I mean, I actually admired people on the news that could just talk and talk and talk and talk because I was so messed up that... And, you know, I would react to everything. I'd personalize everything. I was very narcissistic. I was, I was all this weird stuff that I just, I didn't have a clue who I was because I hadn't been drunk or, or hadn't been clean and sober for long periods of time that I even knew. I used more at that point than I was 
old at the time. And um, so it took me to unlearn a lot of stuff for about five years. And every year went by, it made more sense to me about why I shouldn't trust my own thinking. And when you're talking about being in the yard and, you know, going through all these classes and it just wasn't until you're ready, but that stuff, it's always been a process that I understand is that it will take hold when, when enough of it has entered, I guess is a good way of saying it, in terms of what you're relating to that needs to happen. And for me, that was really reaching out for hope and help in a sense to where, and I go to that bench, just so you know, I go to that bench where I sat that night at 10 o'clock in the evening, screaming at the top of my lungs, waiting, wishing all this stuff would just freaking be over and then I wouldn't be here no more. And I go to that bench every year on my anniversary and, wow. and be grateful. And odd people have actually joined me for that. Yeah. So you're saying that all those classes that I took, right? All of a sudden, um, my brain filled to capacity, and then I was able to use it. Is that what you're saying? I would think your desire was always there, or you wouldn't have been attending those groups. Um, well, you know what? I, I actually, you know, um, I went in there. I, I, I realized, you know, when I first went in that I was going to have to do at least 20 years before I got wow. out. Wow. And so to begin with, you know, my counselor would say, hey, look, you know what? you need to take these classes. And I'm like, why? You know, I got so long to do. Right. I ain't no big, you know, I'm right. not even right. worried about it, you know. She says, but you know what? Uh, eventually you're going to see the pro board. And if you start them now and you start getting, you know, she knows. What, right, what right, you were right, just explaining right. is that, you know, you're, as hard-headed as I was, um, it's going to take 20 years mm-hmm. of that stuff mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. for it to totally take a grip, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, Did it, it take 20 years? Well, um, no. Um, as a matter of fact, about halfway through, okay, about you know, about ten years through, um, I'd had enough, right? You know, right, right. of the prison politics and you know right, all right. that other stuff that I was just, you know, even just smoking a little pinner joint, you know, and trying to get it into who you dealt with, and then getting busted and people telling, you know, it was just, I, I was just one time, I just like, man. I'm done. Well, that, that, that moment you're referencing that you've had enough, that's the epiphany that I'm talking about that's needed. When somebody's finally, because you could, we all know we can use and be whatever we want to be in places like that. You know, I tell people they're in recovery if they stay clean and sober in prison because they could have had a choice not to. And, and you, if you're doing anything that constitutes recovery, it doesn't matter if you're in a hospital or a psych ward or a prison or in your grandma's house, you're in recovery if you're doing something about it with intention. Mm-hmm. And when you had that that moment that said you were done with the politics, you know, not everybody's sick and tired of that stuff. No, not everybody has that insight and that heartfelt centered piece that says, I want, I don't want this anymore. You know, and that's really the magic or the ingredient that it takes for people to have, to sustain this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and really be on a trajectory. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you know, and it, about that time when I had finally had enough and, and I decided to start hanging out. You know, I, I had kind of hung out with, you know, guys that were trying to do good, mm-hmm. even before that, you know. Okay. Although I hung out with some knuckleheads, too, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that was just the yeah. way it was. Yeah. But, um, you know, I just, I had it, you know, I had you enough. You mean Dave? <laughs> Dave was one of them, no. But um, I'd had enough, and I thought, you know what, okay. Um, I'm going to change. But then I had this one cell. He was an older guy, really nice guy, but he'd been in and out of, out of prison his whole life, you know, and he was about 60 or so. But just really knowledgeable guy. Right. I don't know 
why he couldn't avoid coming in and out, you know, as smart as he was. But he told me one time, and this really had an effect on me, um, Doyle, was that he says, there's no magic line when you walk out the gate. What you're doing inside is what you're going to be doing right. out there. Exactly. So that's really what made me decide, you know what, I'm really going to focus on education, getting a good job, and doing all this stuff. Because when I get out, I don't ever want to come back, right. you know, right. obviously, right. you know, after doing that long a time. And then I started meeting positive people, and believe it or not, that's when I met Dave, you know, wow. back nice, in 1998. Nice. I met nice. him, and, and he was on a trajectory, and I was, and, you know, it worked out pretty good. You know, I did more time working in a prison than I did time for my convictions. I did 14 years at CRCI. Working? Yeah, working in program development and transitioning people out. Oh, and wow. I actually referred a bunch of people to sponsors. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I used to work there. That's right? why I said that. Yeah. yeah exactly why. I worked there um, when Dave sold uh, the bakery back in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, I moved back down to Eugene, uh, hang out with my mom. She lives down there. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate enough to go to uh, sponsors and say, hey, look, you know, right. I don't know right. if this would be something I can do. You know, I don't have um, any credentials right. to do right. it. Right. But I got in there, and at first I was an assistant case manager. Um, but they saw how well that I dealt with guys who were coming out. I mean, think about it. I've right. been in there for 20 years. Right. I knew how to deal right. with these exactly. guys, That's, you know. Yeah. And you, it's more or less, you know, it's just no bullshit. You're right. just, you're dealing with them one-on-one. -on -one. And, right. and it was cool. You know, a couple of things happened there that were really cool. One of them was... Um, they would sit there, you know, I'd be talking to them, and they'd come and talk to me, and, and they would say, you don't know, you know, you don't know what it's like, you know. And they just got out with doing three years or something, you know, and they're thinking, you know, you don't know. And I'm like, well, maybe I do. And they're like, how would you know? I'm like, well, <laughs> I did 20 years. Right. So, you know, that has to have some, you know, play in what you're doing today is that people will say that to you and you can reference your past. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I guess going back to where, you know, I said I was going to school to become, you know, working computers and stuff and try to make money. I was always doing H&I &I and giving back and working the 12 steps of A and NA and CA and whatever A keeps you out of the DA. Um, and, I mean, I was doing it because my life depended upon it, and I was just so messed up. And I would literally walk to a meeting that would take 20 minutes to walk to, and it felt like three hours because my mind would be so manic, and it just riddled with race brain. And then when I got to the meeting, I'd sit down, and it would settle down. And then after I left, it wouldn't be so bad. And then so I learned little cliches like this too shall pass and all this other stuff on top of being in treatment and counseling, exercising, sleeping, you know, all the stuff that I never did before. But when I was when I was giving back, people noticed me. And when they noticed me, they kept asking me to do things. And what that led to was the counseling profession. And so I ended up working after doing alumni and taking meetings in the damaged hospital and in, in high schools and everything. I ended up getting certified to be a relapse prevention uh, specialist and a, a, a certified alcohol and drug counselor. And I worked my first five years at the Paul Treatment Center, and then I worked, I went with a friend of mine that was a colleague of mine that's actually done really well in life right now. His name is Debarshi Bajpi, who asked me to <clears throat> come work at ASAP, which contracted inside the prison. 
I also met the founder of Dual Diagnosis Anonymous, which wasn't really organized very well back then in 1998 because he came to DePaul and was my boss. And I would have never thought back then that I would have been the executive director later on with did, him. Did that originate here in Oregon? <clears throat> no. It started in 1996 in Fontana, California, when a group of individuals that were going to a 12-step group were asked not to come back because they were symptomatic. Um, two of the gentlemen were symptomatic and on med changes. And when they were had been going and benefited, from this, and when they were asked not to come back, the person, which was Corbett, felt compelled to help them. And so he wasn't trying to start anything new. He talks about being on a whim, and he's a Vietnam vet that went through a whole bunch of shit in Vietnam, came back, got so heavily into drugs, he died on a couple of occasions, was revived. He ended up in a psych ward, was committed to a psych ward because he was so out of there. He stayed there 15 months, and he was a peer support person because he was helping people better than the people that worked in there towards the end. They wanted him to stay. Right. And so when he got out, he started working in the field of mental health and addictions, and he was at this this program called the STEMS program, which stood for Support Together Emotional, Mental, Sobriety, and Serenity, and he was taking these group of mental health people to AA, which in the 90s, it was 19, early 90s, that's how they that's how they dealt with it. So they're paranoid schizophrenic alcoholics, right, on medications, going to and from these meetings, and they were asked not to come back. So he contacted a central office in New York City and said, what should you do? And they gave him permission to use the 12 steps of AA. And he said, well, if I and start his own meeting. And he said, well, if I did that, I'd customize them. So he, they gave him permission to use the literature with a disclaimer and sent him a letter saying that. So he customized the first 12 steps, added five steps, and he put these literatures together. And it's designed in a way to where people can can fit differently than in a traditional and traditional way of, of, of a 12-step model. And, you know, 12 steps has been a springboard for all, you know, Al-Anon, Al-Anitine, Gamblers Anonymous, Narcais. I mean, I mean, there's so many opportunities for, you know, we got Alky Angels, we got Resolute, we got Solution. I mean, you got all biker clubs that are doing 12 steps. I mean, you got all this stuff that is being used a certain way because it's effective, mm-hmm. you know. And what you talked about in terms of meeting people where they're at with, you know, your 20 years of lived experience is what resonated which is the peer support piece, right? And the peer support piece is the magic, no matter what kind of dynamic or category you're in, that is the glue that keeps this thing together. And right now there's a lot of research that's showing the outcomes that that works better than most medications and models that they got out there in terms of treatment. But most of these people are on medication, of course. No, no. Well, in DDA, just I just use DDA for an example. Um, and I and just so you know, I was told I didn't amount to be nothing in anybody. And I, and I was flunking in school, and I was being kicked out. And I really believed that to go into working in a prison for fourteen years, developing program to be assistant director to an executive director is a pretty interesting feat, considering all the attention deficit and the trauma and all the stuff I had to work through. But what it proves is recovery is possible, and that we do recover and that people with mental health conditions are not their illnesses, whether they're on medications or not on medications. And I mean, coffee, cigarettes, cake, ice cream, that all changes the chemistry and balance in our brains, not sleeping right, you know. So I don't think there's anything anybody does nowadays that doesn't constitute some form of managing their stress or their mental health or their urges or whatever. Mm -hmm. And with medications, you know, um, it's really... You know, anecdotally, it's 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 supposed to help certain people that have an imbalance. Right. And and when you have why they're hooked on drugs or behavioral problems as a result of that imbalance, then it's really a figuring out thing. 
and it's not a immoral thing or what's wrong with them thing or a crazy thing. And in DDA, we really understand that in terms of removing the stigmas and knowing that we're not our labels, we're not our, our you know our medications or whatever it is that's ha- happening to us. It really is about learning how to navigate the system, have a purpose in life, and figure out this thing called you know living that really doesn't be controlled by all these outcomes that we don't want. Yeah. And how important is it, you know, um, you know, when people go to AA or NA or whatever, you know, um, and they've lived kind of a, you know, seclusive, seclusive life, you know, doing what they're doing, hiding behind the scenes, hiding from their parents, hiding from their friends, what they're doing. How important is it, you know, just like those programs for mm-hmm. your people in your program mm-hmm. to see other people that. Hey, oh you know God. what? I'm not the only person Dude, here. Damn, you, I thought I was the only weird guy here, you d- know. Of course, Alon is the only weird guy here. So, but <laughs> No, he's not. No. What? I do like did his I, shirt. Did I say that out loud? Yeah, hey, you did. I didn't mean to, Alon. You whispered it aloud. I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> But anyway, how important is oh that? Oh my God, dude! That is that is the that is the key to all this. That question right there just goes to show how smart you are. What what I try to explain to people, and which is taboo, especially in the twelve step community, is anonymity. You know, and Corbett actually on our webpage DDA Inc. dot org talks about the importance of being choosing to be anonymous or not anonymous and anonymity is really not taking credit for your success, not just that you don't tell who who you are, where you're at and stuff. There is that aspect of it that has turned into it over the years. But but, but with DDA, it is absolutely crucial that some of us choose not to, not to be anonymous and go public. And it's not to promote, it's to educate. And it's to show the difference that you can make when there's something that's being done right. And it's actually a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am so loud and proud, and anybody can break my anonymity in terms of my mental illness and my addictions and whatever programs I've been involved in, because it's not just the 12 steps that works. It. It's not just the 12 steps that actually, even in AA and NA, it's always a combination of family, friends, work, you know, relationship barriers, <laughs> whatever it is that constitutes some kind of insightful change that makes you better, you know? And for me, and for a lot of us, it's a missing link because of where we can't get other things from other programs. The peer support is the most crucial. The identification of somebody who's gone through this and knows how to get out of it and can teach people about that, whether it be a group process or would be an individual or both, is the most successful way that it's been working. And like I said, I worked in the business. I've you know, I've worked in the business for 20 plus years counseling people and running programs. And what I've seen with research outcomes, because I got some of the best board members in the state of Oregon that does some research. And it shows that when, you know, with all these models and all these approaches, mental health crisis and, and, and lack of, you know, success has been climbing. But in the peer support model research outcomes, it's being successful. And and when I did burn burn grant um, people in Turning Point, um, when we introduced and Monta was uh, a manager of Bridges of Change at the time, and Doug Van Zant and some other people were coming in, Joey Johns, they were coming in and they're presenting to the to the unit, and then they were meeting with me and the client and using the, the, the discharge plan a certain way so that they would meet them at the door, you know, mentor them out, and then show them the way, and that relationship was the key. And I've seen people that were, like, 
diagnosed and their prognosis was great. They demonstrated great understanding. They've been and now the, the program so well leave and fall flat on their face. And it's that gap in the middle that when somebody was mentored, the success rates and the risk factors went down, the success rates went up. And the burn grant after first year, the research proved that 33% of the people that used the mentoring program were successful, more so than before. Right. Right. So that bleeds over into all these other mentoring programs. And now you got certified recovery mentors, wellness specialists, DDA outreach specialists. You know, you got all these different people now that are paid to not only help people, but get the help that they need when they're helping people, which is a no brainer to me. I mean, how important is it for, you know, for somebody to encourage you, you know, for right. somebody to step up and say, you know what, dude, you know what? I how believe, important is it? I believe it's you, man. Dude, it's, it's like, I don't know how it's, the, it's, it's almost unexplainable. When somebody cares about somebody in the sense that it sparks something for them to go, oh, my God, this is what I needed. This is what I've never found. This is, this is exactly what I, it's because something like that has happened, right. whether it be in a group process or an individual process. Right. It's so important. How important? I would say from my personal experience and my professional experience is one of the most important things that will that will be the the instrument or the I would call it the pure efficacy to self efficacy. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Well you know what, we've got to take another break. Okay. I mean we gotta thank these sponsors that are gonna pay us the big bucks. And we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you easily control just how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up, or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and you get a $150 credit. You know what, all on from now on, mm-hmm. your, your nickname is Startup Ruby. I've, I've been called worse yeah. by you, in a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what we should do? We should have an episode where we just go back and bring up all the ones that I've said. Just a, <laughs> I don't know if that's a one-hour edit of Lad's best disses. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I would imagine if Dave was online right now, there, there would be a lot of those, right? Oh, man. Yeah. Me and Dave, yeah. yeah. We always talk about how big or small his wiener is. And, it, you know, it's a kind of a good topic to talk about once in a while. Keeps people guessing. Right, right. Luckily. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope the ratings are a little bit better without that here now. So... You know, speaking to Dave, when Dave was in prison, you know, and he was suicidal, I'm sure you've heard his story before, Mm -hmm. and um, then he got on medication, and the medication gave him some clarity, Mm -hmm. and then um, he got into an educational program, CAD-CAM. And for the first time in his life, he kind of realized, hey, you know what, I'm good at something. Right. So, what is your program? What, where do you, you know, the people that come into your program, do you have, you know, places where you can send these people to define that, that type right, of, right, you know? Right, right, right. 
Well, you asked me how it started, when it started, and, and since it started, um, and, and Corbett, I have to mention Corbett Monica because he's the founder, and he's actually passed from um, from cancer in 2015. Um, when he went to Bob Nichols at the Addictions Mental Health Services in 2005 and asked for some funding, because wherever he was doing DDA, DDA, it was his little thing. It wasn't really organized. It wasn't until he got mentored to go to the state and um, propose, you know, for a grant to establish DDA in the state of Oregon that it got funded and it's taken off every since. And every since it's grown in a sense to where there's not just groups and meetings, there's actually workbooks, syllabuses, um, didactics in terms of fidelity, uh, research outcomes with focus groups. And it's also shown that there's a need other than just the groups themselves. That's why we have the bowling, the dances, the the, the campouts, all that other stuff. Um, miracles and Motions was, was specifically mentioned like that because there are Miracles and Motions. Dave, you are, I mean, it's included. Um, but what we find out in terms of needs, um, if you think about DDA as a 12-step plus 5 customized 12 step plus five so right there i was going to ask you about that Mm -hmm. what are can you explain what the extra five is absolutely i would love to i wish i would have i have my attention deficit hypertension i should (laughs) have i should have worn the other shirt but because i could have went around with the with the five pedal so you know a lot of people are familiar with 12 step you know aana you know and a lot of people use that in a lot of different parts of their life. People right, who don't right, have those problems right, could use that program. Right, but right. now you're adding five more. You right, know? right. And again, when it started, it was because people were being kicked out of 12 steps um, initially. And it's not always that way now, but that was done. And what, hap- what happened when Corbett added the five steps, it really was a, a piece to where if you come into this group, you can focus on the the addiction or abuse of substances, or use of substances, and the mental health. And what Dave said in this presentation was he never really seen an addict that didn't have some kind of form. And I used to I used to joke with my um, treatment team and say, please, because my case was so over overworked, and never was there just an alcoholic. It was like, please just give me alcoholic. I just need an alcoholic. I got too much work to do because <laughs> nobody, even though they weren't in there for mental health, once you met with them and did their assessment and their treatment planning. There was mental health riddled right. through their lives, and it's just like it's not going to be easy. Anyway, so so when, when it should we, all be DDA, you know. I mean, hey, think I'm about it. Go, you know, I mean, I, this, look there's at the, some <laughs> trauma somewhere in every one of those people's lives. Yeah, who hasn't had know? depression, anxiety, you know, whatever, you know, you know, shame, guilt, whatever that. But when it immobilizes you or forces you to manage in destructive means, and your life is out of order because of it, and you need help to get back on track. Most of the people that come to DDA are coming from the mental health piece, even though it's equally recognized. Do you find that people, you know, um, from NA and AA, once they find out about you, they just switch over? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You know, that's not always the case. It's not for everybody. But for I would say, statistically speaking, 80% of those people find out that, that it does. I mean, they'll bring people will bring people to these meetings. Social workers, mentors will bring people to our meetings. And then, for whatever reason, that person didn't come back, and then they're still there. And I go, well, where's the person you brought? 
and they go, well, they decide not to come, but I need it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that happens. Well, there it is. Yeah, yeah. So and, anyway, let's get back to the five. Okay, okay. So the five steps basically is admitting that you have, you know, a mental health issue. You know, and admitting isn't really like you know surrendering. I mean, it really is admitting like if you're being admitted to, let's say, Ivy League co- college, of sorts in terms of a a need. I mean, it's like you're you're really changing your life by admitting that. And for me, with my fourth try in treatment, I didn't change until the mental health piece was admitted to. Okay, right. but so on that note, right? Okay, right, right, so right. say there's somebody who has had a mental health problem problem their whole life, untreated. Right, right. It's absolutely to normal them, to people. That's normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's why I never worked on it because I thought right. I'd be lame if I got out of my manic state of mind and my my you know and how the, how I thought that I'd be crazy considered if I if I said that you know because my life was so crazy with you know when I I know I can switch up a little bit here but statistically when parole probation they would literally have on maps when I did these community meetings they would have on the maps little areas where most of the people were being arrested from. And they would be, and not the whole freaking state, right? And you would go, that's a minority. These are little pockets of people, places, right? And and there's something common about these places, and it's and it's poverty, it's trauma, it's all these things, and you you would wonder like. Um, so, so why is that the case? And but people in those little pockets don't think they think they're the normal people, and everybody outside of it aren't until they could see, they can literally see. Okay, but that's my question. Yeah. How do what? Where's the moment? Where's the uh, the person, the outside person, that brings them to that moment where they're like, "You're not normal," you know? So I can where tell do they you get that I, from. Well, when they see it in other people, and it's similar to like if you go to an AA meeting and you don't think you're an alcoholic, and then people are telling your story, and then you go, "Oh my God!" You know, I remember when I read in the big book that if it says it's every alcoholic's dream to drink like a normal drinker. If you're reading this passage, you are not one of them. And I remember my stomach sinking because I knew that I was that person, but I couldn't fathom the thought of stopping drinking. And so the denial kicked in Mm -hmm. and it just, it takes more and more of that for it to like sink in. But when you really don't understand this stuff and you think it's normal and you see that, that it's what other people are experiencing that need to change, then you go, wait a minute, that's me. And it creates doubt. And really that's contemplation to, I mean, pre-contemplation to contemplation. And once you get to contemplation and you have that understanding and you're like getting in there, then you start thinking about what you might want to do about it, you know, because right. you're not responsible for the illnesses. You're responsible for doing something once you learn you have it. Right. But yeah. doesn't, you know, like a professor, a professional assessment, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. they went to see a psychiatrist and they said, you know, there's yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. old joke, you know, yeah. the guy goes to the doctor and he yeah. says, hey, uh, doctor, he says, uh, you know, do you think I'm, you think I'm going to be all right? And he says, no, he says, uh, you're you're going to die. You right, know? And he right. says, well, can I get a second opinion? And the doctor says, well, you're, you're ugly too, you know, <laughs> but you know, so, but the thing is, is that, you know, somewhere along the line, I mean, I could see those guys learning it from somebody else, but somewhere along the line, they have to have a professional or maybe somebody step in who knows what's going on and say, Hey, look, you know what? Check it out. Right. This is what's going on. Right. You know? Right. Well, in DDA, when people come to DDA, they're they're pretty they're pretty serious about needing some kind of mental health, you know, support, and so they're they're probably in a position 
to really be more willing to learn and hear. And they get resources in Armenia. It's not just a process group, but they get friends. They get how to navigate the system. A lot of people say that once they come to our group, they end up getting jobs. They, you know, it's evidence that their their lives have changed by the by the recovery is possible by the way that their lives have changed. And it's not just as a direct result of DDA, but it, it's reinforced by DDA. Right. And it's and it starts there. Right. Right. And I mean, just so you know, like you're an expert, but probably about the institutions and how things work. You know, well, when, when you're mentoring somebody, well, what do you think all these people that have been in and out of psych wards and medications and I agree and hospitals and everything they're gonna they're gonna be the experts. Right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. But you know what? You know what happened all along? What? What happened? Dude, we got talking with Doyle here, and he's so interesting and has such a great story. We've run out of time. Oh, my we goodness. totally flown by. But serious? wait a minute. Did we only get one of the five there? Wow. Yeah. So let's okay. get those other four before we Let's right. do it. And I can, Real quickly. I, and if I can plug dual diagnosis, I'd love to do that. Yeah, so please, so please. the first step is the, the admitting of your mental health problems. Second is willingness to do something about it. Third is working within the mental health realm, which is either is taking prescriptions as prescribed by your mental We're not pro or negative. We're just, if it's part of your, your thing, recovery is constituted by how you do that and work with your prescriber or your clinician or your psychiatrist. And then, then four is the spirituality a- aspect of it. And really, I, it's this. Higher it's, power. Yeah, higher power. And, and for me, it's hearing it through other people and seeing it through other people's actions. And then, of course, number five is service to others. And and once hmm. you're giving it away and receiving it, it's gotta be. it reinforces it. And then and there's no other way. I mean, there really isn't. I mean, it's what's been proven to work. So that's right. So that's the five steps. And but you can have both five. So we have a we have a Facebook page, which is Dual Diagnosis Anonymous Facebook. Anybody can like it. We also have a ddainc.org, which is new and just you know it's, it's so so be nice to me. It's still in the making, but it is launched. And you can see events, and you can see employees, you can see what's happening, you can see picnics, you can see all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. Well, cool, D- yeah. Doyle. It it was a pleasure having you on. It's always, you know, since the first time I met you, um, I've just had a liking to you. Thank you. And I appreciate uh, all that you do in the community. And uh, so all on, guess what? We'd like to thank our producer, Mark Grimes, his sidekick, Michael Coates, and our underdurry sound guy, all on. I'm actually quite hungry right now. (laughs) And we will see you next week. Have a good week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.